needs to keep his promises. You don't know what's true anymore. It hurts me to see people burn the flag. Race relations. Tell me I can't have a gun. I just don't like the politics. Unbelievable. It's what you've been waiting for all day. America Now. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. We've come full circle, everybody. We are back to square one with the health care debate, the health care discussion, at least with the Democrats. I don't know. Maybe there's some comfort we can all take in that. Nothing surprising here. We are back to the original trick with the Democrats, which is to say that Republicans just want old people and poor people to die or to die faster because they don't have access to quality health care. The GOP wants old and poor people to die. I am not exaggerating. I am not pulling this out of nowhere. This is the reality of the counterargument now. Instead of just digging into the details, because I think the more people look at the current state of the health care reform bill that's out there, the more they'll see how much work still needs to be done, even on the Republican side. But there seems to be an admission of that as well. The GOP realizes this is not the final end stage of the bill. But you've got folks out there on the Democrat side who are saying this is about old and poor people dying and greedy Republicans just standing on the sidelines watching, watching as the old and poor wither away. Greedy Republicans with their monocles and their top hats. Oh, I say, I just wish the poor and the old would die so much faster. Not actually what's happening here, but it does make for good politics for Democrats because then... They can get away with offering up any number of bad ideas because at least they don't want the undesirables to die. Oh, oh, ridiculous. Republicans are so, so gauche. Uh, Here's Bernie Sanders saying more or less, yeah, Republicans, uh, this is about death and people dying and they don't care. Uh, Play clip 24. If Obamacare is repealed, we are looking at hundreds of thousands of people who got Medicaid extension, losing that. And how many of those folks will die? How many of those folks will lose the opioid treatment that they now have? It is a lot. I don't know exactly, but it is a whole lot. I've got a number for you, Bernie. Uh, uh, Zero. The expectation is that uh, zero people will die because they lose their health insurance here. Uh, First of all, Medicaid has been shown by studies that I have yet to see anybody even attempt to debunk produce no better health outcome for the people with access to it. Medicaid doesn't produce any better health outcome in the aggregate than those without Medicaid. This is largely because Medicaid is so poorly run that doctors don't take it. Many hospitals don't want to take it unless they have to in the ER where they have to take patients. And so your health outcomes are not markedly better if you do have Medicaid. So there's no reason to believe that anybody, in fact, who has Medicaid and then doesn't have Medicaid specifically as a result of this bill and the other procedures that would be put in place, you would then have tax credit subsidies to buy insurance. Bernie makes it sound like if this isn't handed to you free as a welfare program from the government, then it's nothing. Then you're out in the cold. Then it's just Republicans, top hats and monocles with ascots on their necks, 
just saying, oh, I just wish the poor would tend to their own health care needs and they would just get out of our way and stop taking up so much of our health care resources. I don't know many Republicans who sound like that. I do know plenty of Democrats that actually view the world that way, but that's a different discussion, I suppose. But Bernie Sanders isn't the only one who's saying people will die because of this, uh, which is this. I mean, I know he's not saying how many of these folks, everybody dies. He's obviously saying he says how many of these folks will die. Well, the answer is everyone, of course, in the long run. But he means as a result of this health care bill. The answer is zero. But that's not how Bernie sees it. Based on all the studies that we have, it would be zero, but he doesn't care because there's there are political points to score here. And then you've got Democratic Representative Tom Swozy uh, on health care reform. And he also is saying this is a life, this is a life and death issue. This is, people are going to be dying in the streets, man, unless we keep Obamacare. Play clip to, uh, 25. Real people's lives that are affected. This is really a life and death thing. You know, we think about it, the politics of it all, the Republicans, the Democrats. These are people's lives we're talking about. These are people's lies we're talking about. Uh, that is true when you're talking about health care. But Obamacare hasn't improved the health outcomes for many of the people who have lost their plans. Obamacare hasn't improved the health outcomes for those who just choose to pay a penalty instead of getting a health care plan. And when you look at the various states that only have one plan that is offered, a plan with a very high deductible. Uh, at what point are we going to recognize that this is not really about health care for the Democratic Party? Health care is the vessel. Health care is the excuse to talk about these issues. But this is really about something much more fundamental. This is an argument about the state. It's an argument about statism. Because whether you're talking about the GOP repeal bill as it stands now or Obamacare with its individual mandate, this is about the state saying that you will be protected from your own bad decisions. You will be protected from the choice not to buy a health insurance plan. You will be uh, forced into a health insurance plan that you do not want. Because ultimately, this is about whether you are responsible for your choices or not. See, the way the Republicans are trying to set this whole thing up, it would be much easier for you to buy a health care plan. It would be a tax credit and it would be easier for you to do so. That's at least assuming they get done in stage two and stage three what they're saying they're going to do. Um, but. There is the possibility, as we saw yesterday with the 24 million that may not be. Insure. That was the, the real language was may not be because people would choose the individual mandate would go away. So people choose not to have insurance. They're going to make it easier for you to buy insurance. There'll be subsidies for people who are can prove they're of a certain income to get insurance. Of course, there would be still Medicaid, but it wouldn't be a as much of a blank check from the federal government for states to cover people on Medicaid. Or I shouldn't say it's a, a blank check, but it's the, the account is always open and it's always overdrawn. I mean, they just we're gonna, it's going to be more and more and more. And then it just becomes a question of, well, what can you what benefits can you lobby for? The Democrats then can just offer up more goodies. And who is going to be the one who wants to stand on the opposite side in front of a podium, opposite side of a stage and say, no, th those 
those recent uh, immigrants to this country that that want not just basic health care coverage, but, you know, they want maternity benefits and they want, I don't know, acupuncture and you name it, whatever the stuff is that Obamacare says you have to take care of. It becomes very politically unpalatable to be the one standing on the other side saying, no, don't give that to those people in need. Maybe with acupuncture we could get away with saying it, but with other things it would look bad. So they're trying to put some built-in constraints on how much the federal government could spend on that program. But, but ultimately, I return to the central question here, because this is what both Republicans and Democrats have to face up to, and neither of them want to, because we don't think of health care in this country as something for which you as an individual are responsible. Both sides have really fallen into a state where they believe the state is what gives you health care. The state has an obligation to give you health care. It's just a question of now how we pay for it. The state has an obligation to provide benefits to you in the form of your health care coverage. And how, by the way, you notice I'm not even saying health insurance, because this isn't about insurance, and that obscures the real core of the discussion. Does government have to provide health care for you? If we agree the answer to that is yes, then government has control over your health care. And if government has control over your health care, not only does it get to dictate what happens in a large and growing sector of the U.S. economy, it gets to involve itself in your personal finances, in your life, and in your health care decisions. Because you're relying on the government to give you health care, whether partially or entirely. If you live under the government's roof, so to speak, you're going to live under the government's rules. If we only offer up a slightly better version of the government determining what health care looks like for each and every one of us, this is never really going to get better. But to get to a better place, a truly better place with this, not only would we have to repeal Obamacare in its Entirety, and, and that that's being taken off the table at this point, and it really has, is disconcerting. But we'd have to look at, the, look at the American people and say, listen, we're going to make it so that every American will have it within their means, this will be means-tested, to get an insurance plan. But that also means that you're going to have to pay more for your health care in general. That health care for a while is going to be something that you pay for. This is going to have to come before some other things that we all spend money on. There's not some other magic Santa Claus-like figure out there. The federal government does not get to be Santa Claus here that's going to provide this for you. It's going to be more expensive. Or rather, when I mean more expensive, people are going to be paying a portion of their income for health care. That has to happen. And also, and this is probably more to the point, if people choose not to, in that system, when you can buy what is a health insurance plan, not free health care, in a health insurance, and now, of course, we have to look at well, where is the cutoff and how do we phase it in and phase it out. And I understand this, this is where it does become complicated because we have also accepted the argument that health care is at some level a basic right now. I know many of you would say, well, it's not in the Constitution, Buck. And I would say to you, yeah, I know, but you've got two political parties that do believe that some level of health care is a basic right. I don't know if any—I don't think either side is going to change a tune on that. There are no—there is no movement right now to speak of 
within either, certainly not on the Democrat side of things, because health care is the fastest way we get to democratic socialism. They know it. That's why they love it so much. They're still looking at single, single payer down the line here. They haven't given up on that. Why do you think you've got Bernie Sanders, the most prominent Democrat socialist, at least open Democrat socialist, in the Democratic Party and in the United States, saying this is about letting old and sick people die? And others as well. Because they want to emotionalize the issue and they're hoping to take us to a place where the American people say, you know what, enough's enough. Just, just the government will pay for it. The government will run it. They want it to get to that stage. They think that would be a better and more just version of health care. They don't think that there should be individual choice involved in this. It should just be the government gives you what the government thinks you should get, and we're all supposed to be happy and thankful for that. This is a central philosophical argument underway right now, and you have two political parties that are really just fighting over the size of the subsidy. They're fighting over how much the government will do for you. Neither side is saying, we are going to step out of the way entirely. This is going to be a free market system. And short of emergency or life-saving care, we're not, we're not going to do this for people. You're on your own. No one's saying that. So you can see already it's just a negotiation over the size of the tab the taxpayer is going to pick up for a government-involved health care system. A government not quite dictated yet, but increasingly. And this is disconcerting because ultimately it's about absolving people of their own choices and the responsibility that comes with those choices. So once we set up these plans, once it's all of a sudden possible for everyone to buy a plan, as I've been saying to you, and I don't think you're hearing this from many other people, but this is reality. And I speak to friends of mine that work in medicine about it, that are healthcare policy experts. And some of them will disagree with me. Sure, a lot of them will disagree with me, but ultimately they'll all admit, well, you know, you're kind of right. And yeah, I am kind of right. As in, I'm right. If you're not willing to make people abide by their decisions, you don't have an insurance market, you have subsidized government dictated care. You want to get away from that? Maybe then costs come down and everything gets cheaper. Otherwise, it's just a slightly better version of Obamacare. And we haven't even touched Medicare and Medicaid yet with all this, really. I mean, Medicaid a little bit, but Medicare remains untouched. All right, I've, I've got a lot more. Uh, the, the back and forth over this I find fascinating, and we'll get into some other topics as well. Buck Sexton with America now here, 844-900-2825. I'm sure a lot of you have thoughts on health care. Light up the board. Let me know what you think. We'll be right back. Welcome back, team. Buck Sexton with America now here. So I, uh, I, I actually was going through some of my research today for the show, and I came across a piece, a, a short piece by Kevin Williamson, on a nationalreview.com. Uh, Kevin is an excellent writer, and he goes into more or less what I'm talking about, What I, the point that I was making before about how nobody wants to just speak the truth on all of this. And it all, it all comes down to uh, whether we can have an emotional appeal, a psychological appeal for certain policies, not what does this mean in the dollars and cents, uh, in a dollars and cents way. Here's uh, what he writes. Uh, an example of what is wrong with our health insurance health care system can be found in a humane and well-intentioned bill in the Texas legislature that would require Texas insurance companies to cover the cost of hearing aids for children. The case for the bill is exactly what you would expect, presented in exactly the way you would expect. A public radio story on the subject earlier this week focused on a mother describing her feelings of grief and helplessness after she discovered her daughter was born with a severe hearing problem. For newborn children who can benefit from hearing aids sooner is better, 
The sooner the hearing aids are in use, the better the child's chances of normal language development. And the case against the bill is exactly what you would expect, presented in exactly the way you would expect. Business groups oppose the mandate, as they oppose all additional mandates, arguing that such mandates increase the cost of health insurance for all Texans and employers who provide insurance. Now, in this case, he then goes into the number of children born in Texas in each year, these hearing aids, which can cost up to $5,000, how many of those children, roughly speaking, would maybe need one of these hearing aids, and the total bill for the state of Texas for hearing aids for children born with it, very sympathetic, of course. People, We all want to help children that have hearing loss and make sure that they have uh, normal speech. I'm somebody who uh, had a speech impediment as a kid, so I'm also particularly sensitive to the issue. Believe it or not, radio host who had a speech impediment as a, as a kid, had to have a speech therapy for quite a while. Uh, but he says, look, there, there are two ways you can go about this. You can either add this in as a mandate, and everyone feels good about themselves, but then they realize that the insurance company plays middleman here and is going to obviously do what it can to make sure that they don't take a loss. So they're going to raise rates for everybody. Or you can just realize that this is going to cost uh, roughly a, a million to $3 million for the whole state of Texas. And as he puts it, just cut out the government and so much just write a check. Forget the insurance mandate and just write the check. We can afford the hearing aids. We cannot afford the stupidity, he says here, meaning the stupidity of government and insurance companies working together to decide the best ways to cover this. But this is a perfect example. Do you you oppose this? You don't want hearing aids for children that have severe hearing loss? Well, now we all pay for it. Now now the insurance mandate comes into it. Instead of looking at what the cost would be and just saying, you know what, We're, we're going to pay for this. We have a middleman now, the insurance company that gets to decide how this gets factored in. It may mean, by the way, that other services are not covered. I mean, some there is no free lunch. S- somebody always pays. That's As I look at all of the machinations going on right now with the House GOP bill, that keeps running through my head. That they're trying to find creative and constructive ways to have other people paying for stuff for some other people. That's And I know that sounds vague, but that's true. There's always some effort here to do cost shifting and take money from some people, give it to others. And there's all these middlemen and all these uh, different hospitals, by the way. You see they're so opposed to removing Obamacare as it stands now. It's because it's been great for a, for a lot of hospitals. Right? I mean, now, now you've got all these people that have subsidized care. They're going to the hospital. They're using more care. And they figure that... Well, I'll get into what the Democrats' answer is, but I can cut to the chase with with what really comes at the end of all of this. They don't think Obamacare is failing. They just think that the, quote, rich or those who make enough money to buy their own health insurance without subsidies, I think that now qualifies you as rich to Democrats, uh, they just want there to be more tax dollars shoveled into the system. And do, does anybody think that's a good—do you think you're going to get better health care outcomes— when more tax dollars from the federal government go into this system, you think that's going to help? That's going to make the problems go away? And, and then, of course, that just encourages people to have more expensive mandates and to push for more coverage. And not just more coverage, but fancier coverage, more expensive coverage. All right, we've got more. Stay with me. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. There's been some managing of expectations going on with the GOP. 
you have Spicy during one of his trademark press conferences today where he is now uh, appointment viewing. People are very excited to see what Spicy's got in store for us in the West Wing. And he, of course, when asked about a lot of a lot of stuff with the health care bills right now is focused on the CBO. As I told you yesterday, the CBO becomes a political football and, well, Spicy punted the CBO here. Play it. In 2013, the CBO estimated that 24 million people would have coverage under Obamacare in 2016. They were way off. They were off by 13 million people, over 50 percent. In fact, only 10.4 million people were actually covered. Reports now suggest that that number is dwindled down to 9 million. CBO coverage estimates are consistently wrong and, more importantly, did not take into consideration the three, the comprehensive nature of the three-pronged plan to repeal and replace Obamacare with the American Health Care Act. We're working to bring real relief and better okay, choices. Okay, right, to right, right. We, now we get the rest of it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> now, it's, now it's into the now it's into the rote talking point. You know, well, we're gonna have a okay, great. But the critical point there that I wanted to get to is that they're just saying the CBO is wrong, and yeah, the CBO probably is wrong. What do you want the CBO to do? Do you think you'd get a proper mathematical equation out of uh, and answer out of speaking to a bunch of politicians? Be very hard to do. Because you have to take their word for what they're going to do and how this will play out, and that's not usually going to be accurate. Uh, another version of this uh, managing of expectations going on now within the GOP we're talking about. I'll get to the Democrats in a second. Don't worry. We'll, we'll, we'll touch on that in just a minute. You've got former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, who is just omnipresent all over media all the time. This guy's like every time I feel like every time I turn the TV, they're like, we need someone to explain something. Let's get Newt Gingrich on. It's like, OK, uh, he had this to say about the legislative well, one of the more abused analogies out there, or overused analogies, legislative sausage makings, 19, hit it. Look, this is the process. So there had to be a bill to mark up. They brought out a bill that people on both sides, you're going to have some moderate Republicans with a little heartburn, you're going to have some conservative Republicans with some heartburn. Now they got to go through a process, and it's, it's, it's a messy process. You ain't going to get a sirloin steak. There is no way in the American legislative process to get a sirloin steak. We can, we might get a slightly tastier sausage. That's what he's telling you you're going to get here, a slightly tastier sausage. After all this, after the years of Obamacare is a, a liberty-destroying, healthcare-ruining monstrosity, after years of that, now we've got the GOP dare we say elites, the GOP opinion leaders telling us that we're going to get a slightly better sausage. We're not going to get a steak out of this. I'm, I'm pretty sure I was promised a steak. I think the American people, I, th- I think certainly conservatives feel like they were promised a steak. Or at least that they'd be given the option to buy a USDA uh, New York strip with all the fixins for a good price if they wanted to buy it. But instead, we're being told, no, no, you're, 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 it's just going to be different, different kinds of sausage. That's what comes out of this whole healthcare process. That is disappointing. Um, but I don't think we're done yet. I don't think that we can say that uh, former Speaker Gingrich is necessarily correct. Total side note, by the way, I don't like this, uh, with, with the exception of generals, uh, I, I, you know, with the exception of military rank, this keeping your government title even when you're out of government, I, I don't, mm-mm, no, no, that's, that to me is a problem. Uh, I don't think we should have, you know, I, I don't think anybody who was, is formerly p- 
put in the government title should be referred to forever as Mr. or Miss, uh, Mr. or Miss so-and-so. X something, sure. Former something, sure. But this keeping of titles, that's, I know it's just a, it's a small point in a much, we have much more important things to discuss today. But I, I, I don't like it, I will tell you. It, it sits poorly with me, and I think that there should be a move to undo that, uh, as in we should just stop extending this weird courtesy of referring to people who used to have a certain government position as though they still have it. Um, you know, I've heard people, you know, what they, people call her Speaker Pelosi, and I'm just like, no, no, I don't want to hear that. Uh, you know, Congresswoman Pelosi, sure, but Speaker Pelosi, no. Or, you know, anyway. And see this with ambassadors, too. All these, you know, a lot of them are, amba- you're ambassador forever? Or no, you're, you're former ambassador. Uh, th- this, this should be done also not just because I think that it is strangely not an, it should be considered a not American thing to keep your government title even after you're no longer in government. Again, exception made for military. Um and that's because it's an honorific, right? That's because there were, were uh, maybe you, look. I know you can do the same thing with people that are serving an elected office, but I just I, dis, I just disagree with that calculation. Okay, I'm getting too far in this. I apologize. Let's get back on task here, back on track. Um, you got the Democrat version of things too. So so speak. Uh, see, I was about to go. Speaker Gingrich is about to happen. Newt Gingrich, Newt, saying stuff about the health care bill that it's he's managing expectations. And then you've got the the Democrat side of things, and you have. A, a segment on Fox News where I think something very interesting was said by the Democrat here. In this case, Simon Rosenberg is a former Clinton advisor and founder of the New Democrat Network. He is on Fox, and this is how that exchange went. Listen with me until the end. Play it. Clip 20. Simon, do you want to take one no, more crack no, at Melissa, the number one I, thing I, you would do? Yeah, no, I just reject this entire framing of this conversation. The, Wait, can the you pause for one second? Just for what's just pause this. I love it. Anytime somebody, I just reject the entire framing of the discussion. I, I you, got, you got to love that, right? That's that's always. It reminds me of I, I had a professor of political science at Amherst College. The one conservative uh, that was in the political science department was my thesis advisor, the the uh, the, the wonderful and exceptional Professor Hadley Arkies. And he told us a story in, in one of what was equivalent to a 101 class with Arkies about how the progressives, because obviously they were everywhere, were so terrified of the logic and reasoning applied during his course that he would start on the first day when he would try to get into a discussion of natural law and absolute truth. Uh, he would start on the first day, say, can we all, you know, and he had this very interesting way. He was saying, well, can we all agree that a chair is a chair? And, of course, and he would say that to us, too. And he told us later about this. And we'd all say, yeah, sure, okay, Professor, the chair is a chair. And he goes, wow, if we can. So no one else can say it's not a chair. A chair is, in fact, a chair. And we went through this, yes, sir, it's a chair. And he goes, well, later on he told us that there was somebody who says, I reject the entire premise of this argument when he said, can we all agree a chair is a chair? So that, I think, is a pretty good summary of the progressive mindset. Uh, Side note. Um, But. Why was I telling you about that? Oh, yes, re- that rejecting the—I re- I reject the premise of your argument. That's always a fun one. But let's get back in the Democrats and health care. This is Simon Rosenberg on Fox News. Continue, please. 
Obama came to the White House. People were not able to get insurance. Healthcare inflation was galloping. We fixed those things, right? T tens of millions of people have insurance. What about all insurance. the markets where there's only one finish. choice and the insurance companies are me. pulling out? You've been interrupting me a lot today. Let me finish, right? Is that I'm trying to get my point. I'm answering your question, right? And so tens of millions of people have insurance who didn't have it before, and they're happy with that insurance. We know that from polling. The second That's thing is true. that healthcare inflation, it is true. Healthcare inflation is actually slowed down. And so we made significant changes that improved the American healthcare system. Sir, so if can we pause for one second? What he's really talking about is uh, people that have, uh, there, there are two, generally speaking, classes of individuals or uh, two, two different groups of people that like what they've gotten from Obamacare. Those who are included in the Medicaid expansion, which is a welfare program, and those who are able to get insurance with the subsidies on the individual market, particularly those who, because of pre-existing conditions, were priced out before. A lot of other people that are now forced to get Obamacare plans do, in fact, hate them. And I know because I've spoken to lots of them, and I've looked at the plans, and I've seen the polling data, and people that are forced to get—a lot of people—the real question to ask, by the way, is not even, how do you feel about this plan you have now? For a lot of people, it's, how do you feel about this plan they should ask the people that lost plans whether they like their Obamacare plan more. That would really be instructive as to how much people like this or not. But anyway, that's so just so we, when he says, oh, people like it. Well, yeah, people like free stuff. That is true. People like the taxpayer to pick up the tab and the 10 million plus who have Medicaid now that didn't have it before, even though, as I said to you, Medicaid doesn't improve health outcomes, meaning you're no more likely to live longer or have a better health outcome with Medicaid than without it. People still psychologically prefer to have some form of coverage, even if it doesn't work out as coverage. But then we'll get to a critical point here. Play the rest. You are them, repeating yourself, and now you idea. need to answer my question, which is what about all I'm the markets answering your question. where there's we only... Listen put our to me. ideas what? on the table, and we've made the system better. Simon? The Republicans don't like it. I it's asked you what them. about all the markets where there's only one insurance yeah. company, and those right. carriers right. have said they are leaving. What is the so answer the, to that question, Simon? The answer Simon? is higher subsidies. The answer is higher subsidies More government tax markets. dollars. More tax dollars from our audience. That's the yeah. answer? Yeah, that's the answer. Okay. That is the answer from the Democrats. They want to keep this bill in place, but they just want more and more tax dollars rolling into it. And then when they realize that this becomes a, a black hole and that there's never enough money you will shovel in to Obamacare exchanges to keep them solvent. It's just never going to it's going to be more and more and more people getting on the exchange and more. And then eventually, when things get really out of control, what becomes the offer? Let's just cut out the middleman, the insurance companies, single payer. And whether that's realistic or not, whether we could bring on a health care expert who would say that could happen or not, that's what a lot of Democrats want. That's what they believe is at the end of all of this. Just keep more and more cash flowing into it. Eventually, people will realize that this is a tremendous outlay of spending forced on people by the federal government. And they're going to say, you know what, let's just go to single payer. It'll be easier. It'll be easier. And then, you know, when you have uh, when you need a shoulder operation or hip operation or whatever it may be yeah sure government's going to come through for you in about 18 months with whatever doctor they assign to you that doesn't sound like what i want i don't think it's what you want either 844-900-2825 what do you think about where the gop is right now with health care is this going to get better or is this just going to be slightly better tasting sausage we'll get into that more coming up stay with me Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. 
Phone lines are open, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK, B-U-C-K. We've got Bill in North Carolina on WPTI. What's up, Bill? Good evening. Nice to talk to you again. I, I called one during one of your earlier shows. Um, well, I'd good to have to you back. I like I like repeat business. <laughs> okay. You're as good as a good garage mechanic then, right? I guess so. Although I'm bad with cars. But what's your question? Uh, well, it's a recommendation that since Bernie Sanders and the Democrats uh, feel that we need to be sure that the the poor and so forth don't get cut off from their health care and health insurance, uh, what we perhaps might do is, since the government has done such a masterful job in providing health care to veterans, why don't we fold those people into the Veterans Administration system and uh, perhaps uh, double its budget, and, and then everything will be taken care of, and they will have single payer for the, uh, for the poor and, and so forth, and it'll just all be resolved, and those who don't want any part of it can go to private insurance. Are you, are you being facetious, or is this a serious proposal? You're being serious? Uh, well, I mean, I mean, for for one, right, the 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 obligation that the that the U.S. taxpayer and U.S. citizens have to those who have served in the armed forces is is different, distinct, and special from the obligation that the that U.S. taxpayers have to just help poor people that can't buy insurance. Where we we understand that, so so you'd have to automatically get rid of that distinction. One is what is owed for service; the other is and and is a sacred obligation. The other is just. We are trying to be a, a just and kind-hearted people, right? We get that. You, you understand that. Before we can even go yeah. further on this, which is that the VA actually has plenty of problems, and I've, I've done entire shows where we talked about all the different issues at the VA and the uh, lack of timely care. That I mean, it depends. Some VA facilities are much better than other VA facilities, but there are problems in the VA. And keep in mind, that's also a small subset of the overall U.S. population. I mean, you're talking about... Uh, those who have served in the Veterans Administration is dealing with a number that's going to remain relatively uh, constant and foreseeable based upon who has served in the military, whereas you know Medicaid expansion or those who could be on a essentially wet welfare health care, uh, that's a, a number that's constantly changing and could actually be quite large if the Democrats have their way. So in providing, providing health care to tens of millions of people through the VA system would be very different than what it is right now. We get that too, right? Yes, of course. I I didn't mean any insult to veterans, but no, I, I didn't. I didn't say, but I didn't mean that you were insulting veterans either. I just wanted to establish that there is a difference between what is owed to veterans versus what we give in welfare because the American people are kind. Right? There's a big difference there. That's all. <laughs> uh, indeed, indeed. But uh, my, of course, my satirical point was that since the government has done such a great oh, job. Oh, I asked if you're being facetious or not, and you should have just said yes. Okay, so you're saying the VA's got huge problems, the VA single payer at work, and that's a special subset of the population that we owe something to. They can't even do that well. So single, yeah, okay, I agree with that argument. I thought you are saying literally we should fold everybody and Medicaid into the VA. I'm like, well, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> okay, now we're laughing. We're on the same page. All right, I, I understand. I, I, Bill, you, you had me confused there. You're you're taking me in some, some twists and turns. Uh, but thanks for calling in from North Carolina. I appreciate it. Um, okay, uh, what else did I have for you on this health care issue? Um, ooh, we'll have to get into the Ryan 
Oh, we have to get into the Ryan leaked audio here in the next hour, I guess. I wanted to talk to you about that now. And I also got some a, a discussion, a follow-up on our talk about Middlebury, where that uh, where an angry mob not only prevented a speech from happening by author Charles Murray, but injured a professor whose purpose there was to be the counterpoint to this guy. She's written in the New York Times. I want to address that. There are some other... Um, other things that I wanted to touch on here as well on healthcare. Oh yeah, Mo Brooks. I gotta get to this Mo Brooks exchange. I'm gonna have to sell this one to you a little bit before we can get into it because I'm gonna run out of time here at the top of the hour. But here's what ends up happening: Mo Brooks is one of the few people I'm hearing out there who is willing to come out and say that the American people need to that that a, a more robust economy with faster rising wages and more choice in the healthcare system so that people are in charge of their dollars and where this all goes and they're not mandated to support other people's healthcare needs excessively that that's really the answer and that everything that comes short of that is going to be just just tinkering with what's already in place here which is the government deciding remember the, the objections that conservatives have to the repeal and replace bill as it stands right now the objections are that they don't it, it doesn't take away the regulations that uh, that allow the state, in this case the federal government, to dictate what is necessary care. So it does perpetuate this idea that there is such thing as a free lunch when we know there's really not. Um, and it also doesn't allow—now, they're saying in phase two and phase three it will, but okay. And maybe Paul Ryan is crazy like a fox. Maybe Paul Ryan sees this all as we just need to get through this budgetary part of this and then— once that's passed, we can push harder for a more free market-based system. But I I doubt it. I think that might be giving the establishment wing of the GOP on this stuff a little too much credit. But Brooks also says that there's a he makes a connection between healthcare and illegal aliens. That is interesting, and certainly gets the ears of many in the uh, journalist establishment uh, listening. So we'll hit that and much more coming up in the next hour. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. Welcome back, Team Buck. To finish up our discussion today about health care, I wanted to tie it to and then transition to a discussion of immigration and immigration enforcement as well. Um, and while I'm doing that, also keep in mind the phone lines are open, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Uh, it would be great to hear from you. Uh, Cong uh, GOP Congressman Mo Brooks. I, I like this guy. The first time he ever came on the radar for me was when he was talking about, uh, I forget what exactly, the Obama during the Obama administration and something about the budget or Maybe it was TARP. I can't even remember now. But he had this very memorable exchange with an MSNBC anchor uh, who who made who made the mistake of the on-air assumption about a guest, uh, which is never never a good move. And well, let me just just to remind you, we're going to get into Mo and and his discussion today on healthcare and illegal aliens, which I thought was very interesting and. We'll transition us into a discussion about immigration, and then we've got to talk about this, the Middlebury, the aftermath of the violence at Middlebury College. It was violence. It wasn't just a bunch of progressive 
loons. Uh, you know, it wasn't just the, the, the general inmates running the asylum at Middlebury. It was also the inmates turned violent at Middlebury. Um, but first, Mo Brooks, he had this exchange on MSNBC. I just, this is just a trip down memory lane. For those of you who haven't heard it, it's classic. Play it. He's in the majority of the United States Senate. It goes up $1.8 trillion, and now it's up $2.8 trillion while he's president. It just keeps getting worse. You're simplifying the issues that were on the plate of the nation at that point. I mean, we were looking at going, reverting into a depression at that point. Everyone, the Fed chairman... Well, I disagree that we were going into a depression, but go ahead. Do you have a degree in economics? Uh, Yes, ma'am, I do. Highest honors. Okay, so... Oh, snap! Oh, there it is. There it is. Uh, the the anchor, the opinionated anchor. I thought anchors are supposed to just read the news and ask straightforward journalist questions. What's this, you know, what's this undermining the guest as though he doesn't know anything? And for those of you who are curious, by the way, Mo Brooks finished Duke University in three, not four years, with a double major, highest honors, summa cum laude, in political science and, yes, economics. <laughs> so, so there is that. Do you have a degree in economics? And that she was roundly mocked for that one. But that's how I knew. Uh, yeah, I do, actually. <laughs> that's great. Oh, man, it was good. That was good times. Uh, that was years ago. I just wanted to just do a little trip down memory lane with you all there because that's always so fun. Oh, oh, MSNBC. You're so you're so silly, MSNBC. Um, but then today, Brooks was talking about health care and Speaking a little bit of reality here that I I think we need more of these injections into the GOP, free market means you make choices and live with those choices. And there aren't all these intrusions and there aren't all these government mandates and there aren't all these safety nets that are just put in there for everybody all the time. Uh, Here is Brooks, though, talking about how, you know, you could we could just try to make the economy more robust for those who are working and those who are trying to be able to purchase their own health care. And part of that, by the way, would be dealing with the downward pressure on wages that come from, yes, illegal aliens. Oh, we're bringing a couple of issues together. Play clip 17, please. Well, sure. I would like to see people voluntarily purchase health insurance in order to minimize their risk of a significant loss because of illness. Yes. But this is America. We believe in liberty and we believe in freedom. And if you're going to believe in liberty and freedom, then you cannot, with the heavy boot of the federal government, force people to purchase insurance. Press well, you have to be able to Congressman. Sorry, one sec. So he's saying what nobody seems to want to say, which is that, okay, if we make insurance possible for all to purchase... But don't mandate that everyone purchases it. Because remember, we were told all Republicans, all conservatives are saying, hey, the mandate is uncon- the mandate's unconstitutional. Have we decided that that 5-4 Supreme Court decision no longer stands? The mandate is unconstitutional if you're a conservative. It regulates inactivity. It says you must buy a product. What happened to all that? Okay, but they're going to get rid of the mandate. They say, fine. But if you get rid of the mandate, then you also have to understand that if people choose not to buy insurance, and they should make it easier for everybody to buy insurance, sure. But if people choose not to buy insurance and they are not covered under a government health care welfare program, Medicaid, then they are going to have to deal with the economic repercussions of not having insurance coverage. Otherwise, it's not insurance. We will continue. Mo Brooks laying it down. More. 
Yeah, you have to be able to afford it. You, you do have to be able to afford assurance. And, and, and this is, I don't uh, think on CNN. That, that all the people who have been added to the roles actually uh, pretty because sharp of guy. Obamacare, they certainly, some of them couldn't afford it before, and now they can. Do you agree with that? Well, if you want to get into the affording uh, aspect of it, the best thing that we can do in the federal government to ensure that people can afford health care is to do things that will help increase wages. And one of the best things we can do to help increase wages for working Americans is to deport the illegal aliens that have flooded the marketplace, suppressing wages for all Americans. And in addition to that, those illegal aliens have taken job opportunities from American citizens, roughly 10 million to 15 million job opportunities that have been Pause lost. To Very important. He's saying that, because as we know, the structure of Obamacare is there are those who are covered by Medicaid, health care welfare. And I, I, by the way, I don't say that disparaging. I just say that to be honest. I mean, people need help and we're, we're going to help people out. And you've got this government program that's there to give people health insurance who, can't, who just straight up can't afford it. OK, but Obamacare deals then with those as well who want to buy insurance but need some taxpayer assistance not entirely taxpayer funded, which is what Medicaid is, but needs some taxpayer assistance. And so they are able to buy a plan here. But what Mo, if I, if I may call him Mo, what uh, Congressman Brooks is saying is that those who are in that uh, tranche of the economy, those who are working, they're earning a living. They have money to spend on things, but they need help to afford the premiums of this Obama-mandated health insurance. Instead of focusing on maybe we just give them more taxpayer dollars for their health insurance, why don't we enact policies at the federal government level that don't force them to compete for lower wages with illegal aliens? Because, as I've said to you before, especially when you start to localize your analysis, illegal aliens do, do put um, pressure on wages in uh, particularly unskilled professions and in certain areas when there's a surge of illegal immigration there. So this is just, that's just a recognition of reality here. But I'll, I'll let Brooks finish up. He's saying 14 million jobs. Go. Americans. Well, the, so you've got a double whammy there. If you enforce I, I, our border I, I, security. Go ahead. If you enforce our border security, deport the illegal aliens, you create job opportunities for Americans, you also decrease the labor supply, which means that employers have to pay more to Americans to do the work that needs doing. With that additional income, they can better afford health care, or perhaps if they want to put it into a house, or they want to put it into uh, clothing for their kids or college educations, they can do a lot of things with the additional money. So the things we can do to increase income for American citizens, we just have to get the ability to push those people out of the way that insist that illegal aliens are good for America no matter how much damage they do to struggling American families. Oh, Brooks, that's uh, some Democrats are going to pay attention to that one. I can promise you that uh, this is not something that you'll hear often, but downward pressure on wages even has effect on whether people can afford the very health insurance premiums that they need to pay in order to deal with catastrophic illness. So. This is another way to look at it. You have to hold people accountable for their decisions. And you should also, the government should stop encouraging situations where those who are working and do want to buy insurance are unable to do so because of the downward pressure on wages. Just another thing to add in to our very broad discussion of all of this. Um, so uh, we've got more coming up here. I want to talk to you about what happened in Middlebury. If you have a health care question or comment or Anything you want to add into uh, this 
this stew of analysis we are doing in the Freedom Hunt, 844-900-2825. Also, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. For those of you listening, great place to follow along during the show. We post there, we comment, we talk back and forth, and at Buck Sexton on Twitter. We'll be right back. We got Greg in Oklahoma City on the line. What's up, Greg? Hey, Buck. Shields high, my friend. Shields high. Uh, we wanted to reach out to you, Buck. Um, I don't know if you read the Kevin Williamson piece in National Review about the deep state um, and kind of this this whole idea that the deep state uh, is trying to bring down uh, the Trump administration. While I believe that there are some people within the quote unquote deep state, uh, you know, trying to leak as much as possible uh, to discredit the Trump administration. I think there's a bit of a rift within uh, conservative conservatism, quote unquote, um, between people that believe that there's complete deep state um, trying to bring it down and people that say, hey, there's individuals within uh, the intelligence committee and within different departments that are trying to infiltrate and, and leak stuff out to the media. Uh, and to discredit the Trump administration. Have you read the piece or not? No, I haven't read that that Kevin Williamson piece. I try to read Kevin's stuff whenever I see it, but I, I did not see that one. So what what, what part of what thesis or what part of it do you want me to respond to? Uh, well, just the fact that um, how much of the deep state is actually playing uh, an effect in the political realm. I, I know uh, Hannity went off the other day about how it's the end all be all. And I find that people are using that term now in in a way to make themselves sound smarter um i think that within the context of what the deep state actually is um there is there can be an effect obviously politically um and sometimes it's not as big as people want it to to make it out to be so you're asking how big of a deal is the deep state is that what that's essentially what i'm asking about yeah okay <laughs> just to, to cut cut it down the center here okay um well, as you, if you listen to the show, uh, you'll know from uh, what I've said recently and also from shows I've done on radio in the past, that the deep state comes from, the idea of a deep state comes from Turkey, where it's very real, where the Turkish uh, military, which is what the Turkish military intelligence will swoop in and, and override some of the democratically elected uh, initiatives or the government itself. There have been coups in Turkey, uh, and there was even that recent, that recent coup attempt that didn't last very long. That's a whole other discussion that I would like to get into, um, but uh, never get into another time. But so that's where the, the idea that, or the term deep state comes from Turkey. And we use it in this context in a couple of different ways. You're asking me how profound is the deep state in its anti-Trump efforts or how widespread is it? Maybe is a, a better way to put it. I'd say this. There are probably very few people because one thing I know about federal bureaucrats, and I say this with all due respect, and I used to be one. Right. So I'm a I'm a formerly formerly a part of that family. Uh, is that they are very slow to do anything that would jeopardize their uh, their job. Um, I've, I've met very few that would you know, actively and willingly go to the point for political reasons where they would do something that might get them fired. Because you tend to get a lot of people in government who, yes, on the federal bureaucracy side, they want to serve, but they also they like the steady paycheck, they like the benefits, and they like that they know they're going to have a job in perpetuity for the most part. So a vast, just based on that alone, a vast majority of federal employees, I would think, aren't willing to do the kinds of things that have been done so far to try and undermine Donald Trump, right? The leak of the of the phone conversations, which is cl- almost certainly classified information that's gotten out there. Uh, all of that 
would come from, I think, a very small subset, probably of senior appointees from the former administration who had access to that information then. There may be some stay-behinds in various places within the bureaucracy, but I I think it's a small percentage, a very small percentage overall. I think it's probably a handful of people to maybe a dozen or two people, something along those lines, that... Uh, would engage in that kind of behavior, you know. I mean, at the at the law at the top end, maybe it's a dozen, maybe two dozen, but at the smaller end, I could see it being just a handful of people that have given this information. Okay, but then there's a bigger point here about the deep state more broadly and the bureaucracy. And this, we're going to talk about this later on in the show specifically, uh, or at least I'm planning to today. If not today, then tomorrow. And that is that Democrats own the bureaucracy because the bureaucracy is the state, and if your ideology is at the state should be in charge of the maximum number of issues and concerns because the state is smarter than the individual. The state has an obligation to make decisions for the individual because the state is in a better position to do so. And uh, the people that are going to want to be a part of that tend to be Democrats. And so statism and the Democratic Party have a symbiotic relationship. They work together. Uh, And so that's why the bureaucracy is, I think, ideologically very Democrat. So that's so you have a very democrat federal bureaucracy not entirely but uh it certainly skews that way and when you go to places like EPA and state department i mean state department is you know uh state state department is full of people that probably think that code pink has just bad messaging but overall has some good ideas i mean there's a lot of those in state um uh, but you go to the issue of Trump and undermining Trump, I think that's very small. So is that fair? So there's the ideological deep state issue, and then there's the bad actors within the deep state that are taking it upon themselves to try and sink the administration. I think that's very small, but but very uh, relevant and, and, and can be very powerful. And then I think there's the deep state that is much broader, which is that you've got probably, I mean, if I were to guess federal bureaucracies, you're looking at I don't, I don't know. I don't know if this data has been published anywhere, which actually makes me think I want to try to track this down. I'd guess it's 70-30, maybe even 80-20 Democrats to Republicans in a lot of these federal agencies, not including FBI, not including law enforcement. You got to law enforcement. You got to take out of it because there are a lot of Republicans in law enforcement. Uh, but when you look at the regulatory agencies, a lot of Democrats in there. You know what I'm saying? So does that make sense, Greg? Is that an answer? That's, a, that's absolutely an answer, Buck, and I would, I would tend to agree with you on that point in that there's not a lot of people that want to give up their job um, where it's a guaranteed paycheck every day and they know they're going to be. Yeah, and, and the case of leaking classified, very few want to maybe give up their freedom. But that's what makes me think that it might be former a former Obama administration official who had access to it, who figures, you know, I'll, I'll, no one's going to no leave me high and dry on this. But anyway, Greg in Oklahoma City, great to have you. Uh, Brian in Chicago, welcome to the Freedom Hut. What's up, Brian? Hey, uh, congrats on the new show. I'm Thank a you. Long-time listener. Thank uh, you. Podcast. Uh, I want to comment on the illegal immigration issue, and uh, I'm an electrician by trade, and I see this thing firsthand all over the place. And the point I like to emphasize is it's not, you know, the myth is, is illegal immigrants are out in the fields picking our produce and doing the worst of the worst jobs. Well, they are, but they are working everywhere. In my line of work, I've worked on a service truck. I see a lot of businesses, top to bottom, front to back. I see everything in these buildings, and they are working everywhere. Anywhere a business can plug an illegal, excuse me, illegal immigrant into their business, they are warehouses, 
kitchens, hospitals, anything that they can get them to do, that's where they're working. And uh, just an observation, you know, illegal immigration is an entitlement program for corporate America. They're entitled to these low-wage workers, and then they get to dump all the social costs onto the taxpayer. That is absolutely that's true. That, that's why the, the Republican Party, the, the Republican Party and leadership in the Republican Party for a long time have been absolutely complicit in the illegal alien problem in this country. They have been complicit. You know, you got the Chamber of Commerce and all these other interest groups. They like the illegal immigrant labor they have access to because, as you say, they can pay them these depressed wages. They can even now claim to be doing some sort of humanitarian act by paying them wages in the first place. And then the social costs, schooling, hospital. At the moment they, that an illegal alien has a, has a child here, by the way, anchor baby, there's a reason that's why they refer to it as that, because there is a tether, there is an anchor now into this country, and the child will get federal benefits of all kinds. So absolutely, uh, corporate, the, corporate, uh, the corporate paymasters of the Republican Party have been uh, very bad on this issue for a long time. And I think there are a lot of Republicans who, even the ones who won't come out and say, and by the way, Paul Ryan's terrible on immigration. If we want to get mad at Paul Ryan for something, it shouldn't be his stance on Obamacare so much as what he said in the past about immigration, but that'll have to wait for another day. Um, but this is this is what Trump came into office. This is the primary issue, I think, that uh, propelled Trump to the front of the Republican pack, and it's why he is now president of the United States in large part. I mean, yeah, there's other stuff, too, and his message and America great and all that, but the issue of immigration, because people don't like being lied to, and they especially don't like being lied to and then being told that if they question the lies, they're bigots, they're jerks, they're unfeeling uncaring people. Uh, and that's been the way the immigration discussions, the illegal immigration discussion has gone for a long time. Brian in Chicago, man, Shields High, thank you for calling in. Great to have you. Uh, if you're listening, by the way, and you have not already, please subscribe on iTunes to the uh, Buck Sexton with America Now podcast. Just type in Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes. Click subscribe. And then maybe tell a friend. We'll make Team Buck huge. It'll be huge. That's the plan. Uh, let's talk about crazy progressives losing their minds and such in just a minute. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. So there was this craziness at Middlebury uh, recently. Middlebury is a small liberal arts college, very similar to the college that I attended, what feels like eons ago um, in Amherst, Massachusetts, and I will have some fun stories for you about Amherst and, yes, the all-women's colleges in the area as well for you in the weeks and months ahead. I promise, team, that will be, a, that will be something that we find ways to talk about because, man, those are some good stories. Uh, but let's just focus on Middlebury for a moment here. Just by way of review, and, and actually, pause on the review for a second. Some of you, I'm sure, especially those of you who live in areas where conservatism is not considered a, a, a disease of, of the brain, where, where there are others around you who agree with you, you may live in an area where, in fact, the Republican Party is well regarded and conservatism and constitutionalism are culturally acceptable. Some of you, I, I don't live in such an area, but some of you may, wherever you are listening to this, and based on where... I see some of our phone calls, for example, today coming from. It's quite possible that you live in an area where you're not surrounded by the most left-wing, the most progressive, rabid progressives 
that one could ever imagine. And for those of you in those areas, let me say that whenever you have a moment where you think to yourself, well, if you see on TV or maybe you come across someone who does think that it's their role, that it's their job to lecture you on how Trump is evil while you're trying to you know, check out at the grocery store or something, or lecture you on why Trump is a fascist while you're trying to pump gas and they see a Trump uh, bumper sticker on your car, whatever. You may think you're or, or you see what goes on on TV and these 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 crazies who will go on and and make their points, whether it's to opposition on Fox News or to a chorus of amens. And that's brilliant at CNN and MSNBC. You might say to yourself, where do these people come from? And I tell you, all you have to do is look at the modern college campus and you have your answer to that question. They are being trained. They are being indoctrinated. They are culturally and this is even more potent yes the the teachers and the faculty are to the left of Karl Marx at a lot of these places yes they have a, a hostility an open hostility in the courses they teach outside of the hard sciences and math and such uh, there's there's an open hostility towards uh, the American founding to uh, Christianity to we can go down the line uh, and there's open hostility towards white males and the patriarchy and you're, you're aware of that. But the social pressure that these students feel from each other is perhaps the most profound. That may have more long-lasting implications for their ideas and their behavior than anything else that happens to them in college. I think of, even in my own experience, how the moment that you were, you were tagged as a Republican— your other be they would look for reasons in classrooms, people that knew you, fellow students, to uh, attack you, to say you don't understand, to say that you're uh, being cruel or unfeeling or you're, you know, wh whatever the Republican stereotype is that they could then. And then when you're socializing, you're out at night, you have the same problem. You'll have some that will come up to you, maybe after a little bit of liquid courage and say, you know, how could you be a how could you be a misogynist and a fascist uh, by by voting Republican. And when you're a college kid, you don't want to deal with this. So that is very. And then, of course, on the other side of this, you have people who just love the echo chamber and the virtue signaling or right? the, the, the show without any risk, without any difficulties that one encounters the show of what a great person you are just by supporting, vocalizing certain beliefs. It's a very cheap. It's a very meretricious posture to take but that's what they do um and so th this is how you get progressives just look at what happens on campuses and the for as i said the administration and pr professorial pressures but also the social pressures from fellow students you know look i deal with this sometimes what do you think i say when i would you know ask a girl out in college or even afterwards for many years and she's like oh yeah you know are, are you a republican oh no babe it's cool i'm a libertarian <laughs> That's libertarian. You know what a libertarian is in college? It's a conservative who wants people to think that he's cool and they'll still hang out with him. Um, but anyway, at least that was my experience. Like, ah, smoke, you know, whatever. Legal, legalize the weed. Legalize the weed. Well, what do you think about social issues? I already told you. Legalize the weed. It's fine. Don't worry about it. So that that got me out of many a tight situation. Oh, are you? No, I wouldn't do that now, obviously. But for for years, I'm like, I'm like well, I have some libertarian tendencies, you know. I'm a, and if I really want to confuse them, I'm like, oh, I'm a conservatarian. What's that? What's a conservatarian? Like, what is that? Like, do you like Hillary? I'm like, oh, yeah, no, Hillary is great. But, I mean, you said conservative and, like, libertarian. Like, why do you say that? Like, 
can't you just like for example like Barack Obama's awesome right like, oh yeah yeah he's amazing it's, it's, yeah, uh, uh, I mean you know awesomely terrible um so side note Middlebury and the mob here is an editor so what happened at Middlebury now we've discussed campuses a little bit what happened at Middlebury was that Charles Murray whom I've had on radio before who wrote a book about IQ and the impact of IQ on one's future the likely outcomes in one's future uh educational professional and personal social the book is called the bell curve i've read the book in its entirety i had professor i'm sorry i've had uh, author charles murray on in the past he's a fellow at the american enterprise institute where i was an intern for a short while on loan from the washington institute you didn't need to know that i don't know why i just thought of aei in my time there um and he went to give a speech at middlebury which is one of these small liberal arts colleges that is Amherst was described as, uh, I forget, something like you know, 12 square miles surrounded by reality, the, the, the town of Amherst, which I think is, I'm almost sure is true of Middlebury, Vermont as well. And so the, he goes to Middlebury. It's actually amazing. I'm looking at the, the photo of Middlebury right now. It looks exactly like Amherst, too. Uh, he goes to Middlebury to give a speech on, uh, not on The Bell Curve, which is a book he wrote a long time ago, but on Coming Apart, which is, a, I believe, about class distinctions and the implications for America. And he goes up there, and he's giving this speech, and they disrupt his speech. I talked about this on radio before, but I'm just recapping. They disrupted his speech. Not only did they prevent him from giving his speech, progressive students who were booing and hissing and yelling, and but then when he left, they physically attacked him and a female professor who was part of this event and was there specifically to give a counterpoint. Her name is Allison Stanger. She's a professor of international politics and economics at Middlebury College. And she's written this New York Times editorial. Now, I think it's very interesting to engage with her editorial because there are three parts of this that are worth One is she gives some real uh, first person, a real first person account of how insane these kids are. Two, she points out that the kids that did this and some of the professors who were encouraging them are complete ignoramuses who don't care to learn anything, but I'll, I'll get there. And then three, she begins to explain it away. She takes a little bit of, she begins to try to show that, you know, well, I'm still a good person and, you know, I can kind of understand. And so we'll get, we'll get there. Let, let's start with the first point here, though, because this editorial in response to what happened, in response to mob violence to shout down a speaker and attack him at Middlebury College. This is an idea that has taken over the left, and the idea is that speech you don't like equals violence, and if speech you don't like equals violence, then you can use violence in response to speech you don't like, because it's self-defense, in effect. Although none of these kids know what self-defense doctrine is or anything else, but that's that they have to defend themselves, that their safe spaces have been trampled on, that the, that the mansplaining is destroying their safe spaces. So what happens here at Middlebury and the response to it has not just ramifications across the country, it's a window into this mindset that is now a widespread hysteria that has taken over, not just on campus, but in the Democratic Party. Speech equals violence is what the new left which is really just the contemporary left, the left today, what the new left believes. They believe this. They believe that speech equals speech they don't like equals violence. And therefore, they have a right to silence. They have fully embraced the heckler's veto. 
here's what this professor says. She says that there's nothing like a little violence, or writes, there's nothing like a little violence to focus the mind. I am the Middlebury College professor who ended up with whiplash and a concussion for having the audacity to engage with the ideas of Charles Murray, a scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Um, uh, Dr. Murray was drowned out by students who never let him speak, and he and I were attacked and intimidated while trying to leave campus. She says then, in the days after the violence, some have spun this story as one about what's wrong with elite colleges and universities or coddled youth or intolerant liberalism. Those analyses are incomplete. I think she is wrong. <laughs> those analyses are not incomplete or depends on which one specifically, but those are the basic ideas here. Uh, she says, political life and discourse in the United States is at a boiling point, and nowhere is the reaction to that more heightened than on college campuses. Throughout an ugly campaign and into his presidency, President Trump has demonized Muslims as terrorists and dehumanized many groups of marginalized people. Uh, this is a quote from repeat. That has nothing to do with what happened to her. The, the, to, to create this context of, well, Trump has said bad things. There, Trump has said bad things. Charles Murray is never Trump. Charles Murray will will tell he'll you could have a competition with the, with Charles Murray about who is willing to be more critical of Trump. He finds Trump vile. But so he's going to be attacked. But we'll get into how that can happen in a second. But this, so her her contextualizing of this is is pretty pathetic, honestly. And I know she was attacked and so everyone's going to say, oh, but, you know, her opinion here is all that matters. No, because this is reflective of a much larger intolerance with the American left across the country. Um. So then he, uh, then he, then he, she goes into some of the details. Quote, from the stage where I sat with Dr. Murray, waiting for students to take their seats, I saw a sea of humanity. Students were chanting, who is the enemy? White supremacy and racist, sexist, anti-gay, Charles Murray, go away. Others were yelling obscenities at Dr. Murray. What alarmed me most, however, was what I saw in the eyes of the crowd. Those who wanted the event to take place made eye contact with me. Those on disrupting it steadfastly refused to do so. Um, so they also turned, by the way, activists figured out that they could bang on windows and set off fire alarms. Uh, so that also was added into all of this, but then let me give you a little more of the detail and then I'll have to go into a break and finish this on the other side. Quote, most of the hatred was focused on Dr. Murray, but when I took his right arm to shield him and to make sure we stayed together, the crowd turned on me. Someone pulled my hair while others were shoving me. I feared for my life. Once we got into the car, protesters climbed on it, hitting the windows and rocking the vehicle whenever we stopped to avoid harming them. I am still wearing a neck brace and spent a week in a dark room to recover from a concussion caused by the whiplash. Let me just stop here for a second, and I want to talk more about this in, after this break. But let me say before we go into the break, that Middlebury, a private college, has not expelled a single student for this is a grotesque embarrassment and the universe the college administration should be humiliated by this they should be under so much pressure from alumni to get because if they will not protect a female professor at a speaking event from the, and never mind the invited guest as well from physical violence it is a joke and I don't mean to just pile on Middlebury, although I, I want to as well, because they deserve uh, the scolding that I am trying to give them now. But Middlebury is not the only one like this. Little punks 
who take it upon themselves to be violent towards a, to a, a speaker they don't even know anything about should have their tuitions forfeit and be expelled from any serious institution. Any serious institution that Middlebury has not done that tells you all you really have to know here. And that this professor then goes on to try and explain away at least some of this is some bizarre version of Professor Stockholm syndrome at these places. Like she's a hostage and she likes her captors. All right, we're going to hit a break. We'll finish this on the other side. I'll be right back. So I just wanted to give you a little more of this professor, the one who was attacked and had to spend a week in a dark room, got a concussion, neck hurt in a car, people around. I mean, look, there any number of things could have happened here. Somebody could have panicked in the vehicle and run over a few students. I mean, this this could have turned really, I mean, it already turned really ugly. This could have turned life and death. That's And that's how reckless and stupid these kids, who, by the way, are attending a private $50,000 plus a year college which is a, a selective place, not as selective as Amherst, but a selective place. That's just a, a dig at Middlebury. Um, unnecessary, but fun nonetheless. Okay, uh, where was I? Yes, so here's what she said. Part, so they attack her, they attack Charles Murray, they, they act like a bunch of, of, of hooligans, a bunch of vandals. And she says, quote, part of the, fear, part of the problem was the furor that preceded the talk. Uh, I was genuinely genuinely surprised and troubled to learn that some of my faculty colleagues had rendered judgment on Dr. Murray's work and character without ever having read anything he has written. It wasn't just students. Some professors protested his appearance as well. Intelligent members of the—this is more from her piece—intelligent members of the Middlebury community, including some of my own students and advisees, concluded that Charles Murray was an anti-gay white nationalist from what they were hearing from one another and what they read on the Southern, Southern Poverty Law Center website. I mean, it's, it's really, uh, Southern Poverty Law Center is just, it's just garbage. Anyway, never mind that Dr. Murray supports same-sex marriage and is a member of the courageous never-Trump wing of the Republican Party. So they're calling a guy anti-gay who's ex- who's openly pro-gay marriage and pro-gay rights across the board. And they're blaming him for the rise of Trump when he was saying that he thinks Trump is you know, he, he was as he was as never Trump as anybody on the right, at least. Um, and there is so not only do you have people think they can shut down speech they don't like, because now on the left, remember, very important, speech equals violence to progressives now. Because they can't handle, they can't, you know, it's really like Colonel Nathan R. Jessup in A Few Good Men. They can't handle the truth, and they really can't. You can't handle the truth. Great movie quote. But look back now for a second at what she finally concludes with in this piece. And this is what's so troubling. So she establishes that these are violent maniacs on campus. I've established for you that, as far as I know, not a single student has been expelled. Not None of these coddled brats and man, I would love, I would love to go up to Middlebury, but I will be honest with you, it would be a very different situation. The first Middlebury student who lays his hand on Buck, the speaker, is going to have trouble using that hand for a while because I would never allow somebody to do that because I'm sorry, self-defense is allowed, but Dr. Murray's old. Er. And this is a woman with an older man, and they're being attacked. Anyway. Uh, so She then says, after establishing all this, that I'm not saying that students shouldn't protest white nationalism, but there was a direct line between the fighting words on campus, the suppression of speech, and the angry mob that gave me a concussion. 
all violence is a breakdown of communication. That's what she writes in this piece. No, all violence is not a breakdown of communication. In this case, violence was an act that a bunch of self-righteous clowns took it upon themselves to use against something they didn't like. Guess what? You could have told them that Dr. Murray was pro-gay marriage. You could have told them that Charles Murray was anti-Trump. It wouldn't have stopped because he's right wing and they wanted to throw a fit and they wanted to feel like they were proud and part of some revolution. Not only are these students at Middlebury that did this punks and morons, but they're cowards too. That's what you have to remember. And so many progressives, especially when they're surrounded by their own kind, are cowards. The things that matter most in your day-to-day life are too important to trust to just anyone. That's, that's, why. that's why he's here. Buck Sexton with America Now. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. All right, Team Buck, we are joined now by Tom Nichols. He is professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College, an adjunct professor at the Harvard Extension School, and a former aide in the U.S. Senate. He is also a five-time Jeopardy champion. Mr. Nichols, great to have you, sir. Thanks for having me, Buck. Congratulations on the new show. Thank you so much. So you are here because we want to talk to you about a bunch of things, including your book, The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. But before we get into that, can I just ask you about Hillary Clinton's Russia talk? And by the way, uh, Jim or Tom is very uh, critical of Donald Trump, but is also willing to be critical of Hillary uh, Hillary Clinton. And the Hillary Clinton-Russia ties are not something that get much attention. I was wondering if you could fill us in a bit. Well, the problem, of course, is that the Clinton Foundation, the Clinton Global Initiative, um, will never really know, will never really plumb the depths of, you know, how inappropriate or how uh, – uh, what kind of deals uh, the Clinton Global Fund, Global Initiative made? Because of course now they've disbanded it. Um, but the Clinton and Russia ties are not, I think, in the same category. They're not the same story as the Clinton Trump ties. Mostly because the Russians or the the Russia Trump well, ties. But let let's let's stay well, on the, the Clinton Russia, for a second. Go ahead. Yeah. The the um, the thing is the Kremlin. The thing to understand the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin personally really loathed Hillary Clinton. Um, and so the financial dealings, the kind of pay-for-play stuff that started to surface during the campaign are not the same kind of political ties because Putin has a particular loathing for Clinton because he assumed she was behind a lot of the protests against him uh, when he came back to power during the uh, Obama administration. So it's not it's there are there are probably some ugly financial ties there but they're not the same kind of political ties because of that particular animus. Right, that, but I, uh, is it fair to say that maybe a a a receptive ear with Bill Clinton perhaps even may have been found by any Russian oligarch with the means to pay? Well, I think the problem was that with the Clintons, there was always a receptive ear for anybody willing to pay. Yeah, okay, uh, fair uh, enough. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, I don't think the Russians were a unique case. But again, it's always important to add the proviso that at the, when it comes to the Russian political structure, leaving aside the oligarchs and the wealthy um, Russian power brokers, the Clintons are an object of special hatred, Bill Clinton in particular, because of his expansion of NATO which they blamed him and Madeleine Albright for personally. But, of course, rich Russians can put aside their interests or put aside their political views when their financial interests are involved. So it wouldn't surprise me at all to find out that that had happened. 
Let's talk about your book, and, and, which and is, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, it is always only representing my own view on this, Buck, but none uh, of that would surprise me. Yeah, yeah, no, this is this is just Tom speaking for Tom, everybody. All the fancy places where he's affiliated, he's not speaking for them. This is Tom speaking for Tom. Okay, The Death of Expertise, uh, that's your book. Uh, just tell me a bit of—can I just offer this? As I read through the description of, of the book, it reminded me a little bit of the, uh, the, the hubbub that was created by that New Yorker cartoon. Do you remember this one a few months ago? Yeah. Where a guy yeah. stands up on a plane. For those who haven't seen this, it's, it's a cartoon that sparked— Many a conversation across the country. He stand a guy standing up on a plane, and the 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 quote is: "These smug pilots have lost touch with regular passengers like us. Who thinks I should fly the plane?" Now, people had very different reactions to this. I feel like your book, in a sense, is a, maybe there's a corollary here. Absolutely, and you know that people who had read the book or were familiar with what I was writing sent me that cartoon. Oh, they did. Okay, uh, yeah, that makes sense. Many, many times. Because it does speak to a, a truth that I was trying to get to in the book, which is not that people distrust experts. That's normal. I, that, that goes back all the way to the – I mean Tocqueville wrote about this, and uh, Richard Hofstetter wrote about it 60 years ago, and Tocqueville 200 years ago. What's different is that people now think they're the peers of experts. They don't just say, look, I'm skeptical of your advice. I'd like a second opinion, or I want you to explain yourself more. Rather, they say, look, I could do this better than you could, or I know about as much about it as you do because I watch TV or I browse the Internet or because I, you know, I read something on Facebook, and it's become a real problem. Now, you write about the epidemic of ignorance that is threatening the foundations of American democracy. That's a pretty, that's a pretty intense – now, this is in, in the description of the book, not from the book pages itself necessarily, but that's pretty intense stuff. How, how is an epidemic of ignorance – threatening the foundations of democracy, as you talk about, uh, as you discuss in The Death of Expertise? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I think that to have a functioning republic, uh, we have to have trust. We have to our, – our legislators can't possibly know every single thing uh, that, they, that they vote on. They can't be experts on child care one moment and foreign policy the next and uh, you know, infrastructure an hour later. So they have to rely on experts. They have to rely on staff. They have to rely on public uh, testimony and advisory committees. And when the public is saying, look, don't listen to any of those experts. Just listen to what we are telling you to do directly as though this were a direct democracy rather than a republic. The system malfunctions because the public isn't well informed on these issues. And that's someplace where I come down pretty hard in the book. Um, I point out cases, for example, like people – uh, where people have very strong opinions about what to do about Russian uh, interference in Ukraine. But then if you ask people to find Ukraine on a map, the average person is off by about 1,800 miles, which means the average person can't even place Ukraine on the right continent, even though they have very strong feelings about it. And so when that happens, when the public becomes so uninformed and yet so insistent on controlling policy through kind of sheer emotion, then the, the republic is in danger because that is not the way our system was designed to, to function. It's not the way the founders uh, saw the, the way that the business of the country would be conducted. By the way, your, your point about how people in, in government, for example, uh, elected elected officials need to rely on – they can't be a true expert on health care, a true expert in national defense, a true expert uh, – and, and that all being said, of all of the quotes uh, from Barack Obama's eight years in office – the one that I thought was in many ways the most troubling, which for me is really saying something, is his quote that, quote, that 
I'm a better speechwriter than my speechwriters. I know more about policies on any particular issue than my policy directors. And I'll tell you right now that I'm going to think I'm a better political director than my political director. End quote. Only somebody who has never been confronted with the realities of his own lack of knowledge would ever say such a thing. I mean, th- th- that is borderline crazy. It, it, it was a deeply disturbing thing to hear. Uh, and I and unfortunately, it's not just limited to Barack Obama during the campaign. President Trump, I don't who needs experts. I have a very good brain. I know more than the generals. I mean, when people start thinking that way, um, you make bad decisions because I've been a political staffer. I've been a, a subject matter advisor, both in politics and in government and in private industry. And the fact of the matter is, you know, people benefit from advice and discussion and expert knowledge. And we've somehow decided that experts are the enemy. And I think it's because people now conflate the words expert and elitist. Well, I was, I was about to offer you that I, I think that some of this this transfer from uh, suspicion or skepticism, maybe a better way to put it, skepticism of expertise to thinking one is a peer of expertise is one, a, a lot of the elites in this country. And I'm really thinking now of media and political elites present themselves constantly as on both sides of the aisle. This is bipartisan, present themselves as experts on issues that they don't really know very much about at all. And so I do think that there part of this is a public reaction to now because we all have the internet, we can hear what people say on things, we can fact check them in real time. Uh, you see this all over the place. You know, it, what, what, other than raising money and giving speeches that other people write, what is Nancy Pelosi truly an expert in? And so people think, well, if she can do it, I mean, if she could pretend, I can pretend. But in part, that's because people don't know what Congress does all day. And when you point out that people can fact check, what's more accurate to say is they think they can fact check because they themselves don't really have the background to know if what they're checking is accurate or not. I'll say one thing in defense of legislators, and this is kind of inadvertently against term limits, by the way. When legislators serve on a committee for a long time, they do actually gain a lot of expert knowledge. I worked for a senator who spent a long time Uh, for example, dealing on um, elderly matters. And after several years on that committee, he actually was really good at elderly issues and knew them backward and forward, just as others become good at healthcare or intelligence or or foreign affairs. Um, The the danger comes, I I think you are right to use the word suspicion. The danger comes when people want to blame the system or the government or forces beyond their control for bad things that are happening in their lives and they decide that people with more information or the people that seem to be advantaged in the information economy are somehow taking advantage of them. And I think some of that's just the nature of the information age, that this is a time we live in now where knowing stuff and having information is actually rewarded uh, more than um, you know, pure entrepreneurialism or pure pluck or luck or hard work. I don't, I don't want to chase down an extraneous thread to our conversation here, but just on your, on your note about people who are in the legislature who can become experts. Of course, obviously, there are also people that I remember from my time briefing some of them and dealing with some of them in government uh, who are shockingly intellectually incurious and lacking in knowledge on issues that are within their portfolio who are given a lot of power to make it. Now, I know you're not going to disagree with that, but I'm just that's the other. No, no. no. And in fact, uh, I, I recently came across a piece of congressional testimony that included the gem where it actually had it in the congressional record that the representative involved walked in and he said, and he said, I didn't hear the first uh, questions in this hearing and it doesn't matter because I wouldn't have believed any of you people anyway. <laughs> okay. Well, well yeah. You know, then, then what's the point of a hearing? Really? Yeah. I mean, and I, I could have, we could have a whole other segment where we just talk about 
how I'm always amazed at who will be put on television to represent uh, either expertise or background in a certain matter. I think national security is one of the ones where I'm always, I'm like, wow, that is, that is not somebody who should be waxing philosophical on this, but that's, that's a whole other, a whole other ball. Cause I think maybe it's because the area that I know the best, I see people on TV, I hear what they're saying. And, you know, I'm, I'm amazed at what passes for expertise in the TV analysis world, but maybe that's only a small portion of this. You you write about the cult. Go ahead. Important problem, Buck. And I think, you know, you and I have both had that experience of watching somebody and saying, how did, you know, why, why am I watching this person? And I do talk about this in the book. Part of it is just the amount of television space there is to fill. The amount of bandwidth and time is so huge that, you know, at, at some point you're almost dragging people in off the street to say, hey, have a seat. You know, tell us, uh, you know, be an expert on this. And, and there's no doubt that it's a real problem. And it's seriously uh, I would say degrading the quality of our public discussions. Yes. Well, people either have they either have a, a credibility or they don't. And if they don't, a way to make up for that is to just immediately just immediately go go hard on the issue they're supposed to have an expertise on. Go hard in a political direction. And that's right. You know, that which is, you know, so you go on TV and it's like, well, what what do you think? about uh, counterinsurgency operations ongoing with the Kurdish militias in uh, Syria and the, and the problems that brings in with Turkey. Just say, well, Obama's done a terrible job, and you know, then right. all of a sudden, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You don't even have to know who the you don't have to know who the militias are. The, the acronym doesn't have to have any meaning. But Obama's terrible, and you know, or or on the other side, by the way, you know, MSNBC. You, you turn that on, and it's always you know Trump is Hitler, and and he's going to nuke everybody. Uh, but well, I want right. to give you one more before we we're going to have to run to a break here, and we're talking to Tom Nichols. He's the author of the Death of Expertise: The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. Okay, so you're establishing in your book all these problems that people have with expertise, knowledge. What is the – people say, what's the solution? I know that's not fair because you can't come up with a solution necessarily in a book. How do we make it better? Well, I think one place that – first of all, I think experts have to scale back some of their claims. There's no – I have a whole chapter in the book about when experts are wrong and the kind of mistakes they make in dealing with the public. And I think, uh, you know, some of the criticisms that are leveled at experts are perfectly legitimate. But I also think the average person – has to make more time to be informed. And by informed, I don't mean leaving the television on as kind of video wallpaper in the background or clicking, blowing through 100 web pages with a bunch of clicks and saying, there, I've read the news. I think I always tell people, start your day by reading one morning, major morning newspaper. And don't tell me that you don't have the time or that, that it's too biased or that you don't trust it. Start with at least one major newspaper, work your way from there. And I think most people would be better off Uh, to do that, even if they disagree with what they're reading, because I think the lack of foundational knowledge is what's frustrating the experts and making them turn away from talking with the public, which I think is a disastrous development. Tom Nichols, author of The Death of Expertise. Tom, great to have you. Thanks for coming back, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Buck. Uh, Phones are open, 844-900-2825. We'll be right back. Welcome back, team. Annette in Las Vegas. You are on the Buck Sexton Show. Welcome. Thank you, Buck. And I just would like to um, say to our new president, I think that if he come into the office and have a um, a battle that he can win, which is, again, legalizing medical and recreational marijuana, his points are going to go up at least 30 or 40 points. <laughs> and then... Of course, think about that. I mean, we will. I don't. I don't know if his approval rating will go up thirty or forty points, but I. I do think I that medical marijuana is a good idea. 
Well, recreational as well, and and it'll be health. Okay. It'll be, and, and along with that, it'll be prison reform. Just think about how many people are incarcerated or actually have probation because of marijuana. So you can actually expunge their records. You can be able to give it to the veterans because, again, we see that there's an epidemic epidemic with the um, prescription drugs, overdoses. So this is going to be a lot of win, 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 win. Well, win it, it is true that the prescription drugs, and, and we had that expert on, uh, and Annette, I know you were on hold for a long time, so thank you for, for your patience. Um, we had uh, we had that expert on to talk about fentanyl, and clearly prescription drugs are a much bigger public health crisis and, and concern than, than marijuana has ever been. Uh, and I know that these are drugs that people are getting that aren't even there. It's I originally thought that we're talking about prescription drug with fentanyl and the opioid crisis. I assumed that it was prescription drugs that people were getting and then reselling. And that's often in the past when people talk about, oh, you know, somebody was, uh, you know, getting Oxycontin or usually it's you know, there's a person who's uh, usually a doctor. Or, well, a person can get it legally and then sell it illegally. Selling one pill, I believe, is a federal crime. Um, or what will happen is there'll be a doctor who's writing prescriptions for money. Right. He's just writing out lot or writing prescriptions for large amounts of pills. I didn't realize that this was just a des- this was a, a designer drug, a chemical that was being brought in from the outside uh, by Mexican uh, cartels and by Chinese organized crime, and they were bringing it into the country wholesale, effectively, illegally in that way. So that was something new uh, that, that I was not aware of, and clearly it has to be, this has to be addressed. Uh, by the way, I have some, I'm not even sure we can call it breaking news, but it's a, a <laughs> maybe we could say an allegation of breaking news that is going to really set the media sphere on fire if it's true but i'm i know that's kind of unfair this is like i'm i'm making you sit with me while we watch the bachelor and they're like and the final rose goes to and then they um, we gotta go to break or an american idol you know and the winner is right after this break uh, but i've got uh, quite a, a an allegation of a very juicy story i'm not it's not confirmed yet but it's looking uh, i don't know how they could walk back from it and I know I'm being vague intentionally, so you'll stay with me. So you'll hang out here in the Freedom Hut. But we've got uh, Alan in West Virginia on WLTP. What's up, Alan? Well, hello, Buck. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine. I'm glad you got a chance to talk to me. All right. Thank you, sir, for calling in. What's on your mind? <laughs> uh, your last guest brought up a point, or you brought it up while you're talking to him, about our 24-hour newscasts from so many different places. Yeah. It seems like they got to come out. they got to dig out. They have to go out and find experts, a lot of them. And there just aren't that many of them. Well, there aren't that many who are who are willing to do TV and who are good at TV, too. TV is a skill. I know people don't think of it that way, but it actually is. Oh, I couldn't do it. I know that. I mean, I've seen plenty of people that are, you know, from think tanks, they go on TV, well, let me talk to you about the true ramifications of this policy, you know, and everyone's going, or, you know, they're, they're clicking the channel onto something else, which is every TV executive's worst nightmare. So some, they're, they're very smart people. They're even some excellent writers who write with, with swagger and with knowledge and substance, but you put them on TV and they're, I don't know what to say about that. You know, and all of a sudden it's not good, so... You know, it is hard, Alan. You make a good point. I mean, finding people who are have real background and are good at TV, but also my thank you, Alan, for calling from West Virginia. Shields High. Um, 
important thing to keep in mind. The best advice I was ever told about TV from somebody who's a veteran of the industry, uh, and I do I do some TV here and there. I've, I've been paid to do TV now for years. Uh, and the best advice I was given was, don't ever think it's fair, and don't ever think it's even about fair. So you got to keep that in mind whenever you're clicking through the various cable news channels. It's just whatever the folks making the decisions think, that's what goes, not what reality is about who knows what. We'll be back right after this break with some breaking. Buck Sexton with America Now, where there's always something to talk about, where you can trade opinions with Buck. Not sure you'll win, though. Just call 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right, Buck, you're on. Got a lot to talk about as we get into the latter part of the show here. And we've got a a great guest who's going to be joining us in just a second. But first, I made a promise. I said I would inform you all about this thing that the media is all excited about. And that is that on MSNBC, which I'm guessing most of you listening do not watch, at least do not watch as a matter of habit, Uh, On MSNBC, you have Rachel Maddow, who is on at 9 o'clock. She's one of their hosts. She's making a lot of headway in the ratings these days by just being the most, as anti-Trump as one can possibly be. And she has tweeted out that she has Donald Trump's tax returns from her official Twitter account. Uh, This is what she wrote. Breaking, we've got Trump tax returns. Seriously. And then there was another tweet where she said that it's his 1040 form from 2005 maybe they have this i don't even know that sounds to me like it'll probably be a non-story and really boring but great uh a great way to get more attention for your show but maybe maybe it is meaningful i i don't know we'll see doubtful to me but let's bring in our friend now matt walsh he is the author of the matt walsh blog he's also a writer for the blaze.com uh matt great to have you hey thanks for having me uh, first off, can I just ask you, I know we don't know because we have to wait for Maddow to unveil what she has. I don't even know if you saw this tweet, but everyone's now, of course, freaking out because Trump tax returns, as though the the Trump tax returns aren't already in the hands of the federal government, which the FBI could easily get access to if it was really worthwhile. But that's a whole separate part of the discussion. Uh, what do you think? Is this going to mean anything or is this just a way to hype up a show? I would say the latter. I just saw how uh, Maddow clarified that they are his uh, t- t- 2005 tax returns. So right. She only has, she only has 2005. So it's, you know, that's more. I, at first, I thought we'd be looking at something from 1983. So it's more recent than I thought. But just one year, 11 years ago to 12 years ago, uh, unless they find something, just some huge bombshell. But as you said, if it's really a bombshell, if it's like, indication of criminal activity you know something like that well the FBI, we the government would already be on that be be, be on that uh, on that trail and doing something about it so um it's hard for me to believe i got I, I feel like a few years ago i got a letter from the irs because of a uh, a 1099 that i i thought was covered or what and like they're like you owe us a hundred dollars or something <laughs> so it was, i was like okay i'll pay you a hundred bucks but you know if they want my hundred dollars i'm pretty sure trump's international scheme of hundreds of millions run through the Kremlin or whatever it is that people have considered in their minds. It's not like this has been hidden and no one's ever seen this before. The IRS, which is the federal government agency that I think is the most intrusive and the scariest, already has it. Yeah, let me. Right, right. Exactly. So I I really don't expect to see any proof of a Russia conspiracy. But I think what we're going to if I were to make a prediction, I think it's 
Uh, it's going to indicate that he's not nearly as rich as he claims, and he probably has given like nothing to charity. Um, so that I, 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 if there are any revelations, I'm thinking those are probably it. I don't think it's going to make much of a dent because I think most of us already kind of figured that, and uh, Trump's diehard supporters aren't, aren't going to be swayed by that. And uh, people who are, you know, giving them a chance or whatever uh, probably aren't going to be too swayed by it. So that's yeah, it, it, do, it doesn't move. It doesn't move the needle one way or the other, really, because, as you say, if, if it if he doesn't give much money to charity, they're like, well, his charity is making America great again. If you like him and if you don't, well, you know, he's a liar once again. And, who, you know, what difference will it make to you in, in the long run? Um, but anyway, that, so I just want to touch on that, because right now social media is. You know, all fired up with, oh, they've got his tax returns. I'm like, they've, as you point out, a 1099 from 2005. If there is a bombshell in there, well, then actually I would want to see the rest of his tax returns because what are the chances? But maybe somebody with access picked out, you know, that's the only way this would be meaningful is if somebody, if there's someone on the inside who either was doing his taxes, that's possible, third party, or somebody within the IRS. And then, oh my, I mean, can you imagine the deep state conspiracy stuff that's going to come out of there? That's going to be crazy. But we'll have to see. Maybe it's nothing, and Maddow just wants people to tune into our show. I want to ask you about the Steve King comments uh, that got a lot of attention. We've got Chris Cuomo from CNN who asked him to clarify his comments about uh, I, I forget it was, per, it was something along the lines of Matt, and you can correct me here. Perpetuating our civilization with someone else's babies or something it was, wasn't that the, was that the comment? Right. Yeah, something along those yeah. lines. So here's what Chris Cuomo said to him on CNN to try to uh, clarify this. Play it. But we've also aborted nearly 60 million babies in this country since 1973. And there's been this effort that said we're going to have to replace that void with somebody else's babies. And that's that push to bring in much illegal immigration into America, living in enclaves, refusing to assimilate into the American culture and civilization. Some embrace it, yes, but many are two and three generations living in enclaves that are pushing back now and resisting against the assimilation. It's far worse in Europe than it is today here in the United States. But I want us to be looking at that, promoting the birth rate in America, restoring the rule of law. You seem inherently divisive. That's why I keep asking you, what was your intention with this? And you keep to seem doubling down on it. I mean, you said America's got lots of different faces. That's fine. But you keep making this point that this country needs to be about white people raising their birth rate and not bringing in other people. It's exactly what America is not. But, but Chris... I never have made that point. I've never said that. But I did defend Western civilization that started this last summer mm. uh, at the Republican National Convention. And when I said Western civilization, that launched people that are opposed to Western civilization. That's a big problem. All right, Matt, what, what do you make of all this? I am i don't remember, and a lot of conservatives I saw were very hard on Steve King for this, too. I don't remember him ever saying white, but was he implying white? By the way, the quote was, uh, that we can't restore our civilization with someone else's babies. That was the quote that got him in such hot water with the media. What do you think of all this? Yeah, I, I don't get it. I, I I get what Steve King is saying. I think it sounds pretty logical to me. I don't get the uh, the backlash from conservatives. I understand from liberals are going to take any opportunity they can to call you a racist and to inject words into your statement that you did not say and, in fact, that you made a point of not saying and that you went back and clarified as Steve King did. Steve King has done. And said, I, I wasn't referring to white people. And he hasn't backed. Look, he's, he's not backing down. So he's sticking by his point, but he's just making it clear what his point is. He's not talking about white people specifically. He's talking about American citizens. But to have uh, all of these conservatives just jumping on the bandwagon against him, 
Uh, I'm not a Steve King expert or anything like that, but I, but I, I like a lot of what he's done, a lot of legislation that he supported, and his, generally his views on things. So is, is, is he one of those conservatives that all conservatives hate, like John McCain type? That they're, so they're just going to jump on the outrage bandwagon? Because I don't think he is. I think he's the exact opposite of a John McCain type. That's why I like him. So I think he'd be the kind of guy we give the benefit of the doubt to. But liberals tell us, oh, we should hate this person because here's the out-of-context quote, and then we all just go along with it. I don't – what's – yeah, he might be uh, saying things in a more blunt way than other people would address it, but what's the big deal? He, he's making the point that, you know, we, we, are, we are missing a lot of babies in this country, and that's true. And on top of that, we're not having babies, so we, we have to perpetuate our civilization, sustain it somehow, and it's better to sustain it with our own people by having babies than by bringing in immigrants and illegal immigrants and Muslims and everything else. That. There's nothing wrong with saying that. And by the way, if any politician in any non-white, non-Western country said something similar about their own country, which, which they all say that all the time, and they even have laws to that effect, white liberals in this country have no problem with that. If you had a, if you had a Nigerian uh, politician saying that you know, we need to sustain our civilization by having babies and not just relying on uh, you know, Western immigrants, not that there are a lot of Western immigrants in Nigeria, but the point is if a Nigerian politician said that, nobody would even dream of calling him a racist or having any problem with it whatsoever, right? So is it just, we're, are we the only ones who aren't allowed to, you know, feel like, hey, maybe we should have an identity of our own in this country and sustain it? It's interesting to me, Matt, is, is that there are some, there are some Islamist uh, jihadists out there. There's some uh, radical radical imams who, who will speak, and this often comes up in the context of Israel and Palestinians, but also more broadly now, you'll hear it from some uh, radicalized, uh, radical imams about about Europe and, and immigration in general, and that is that they view demography as a means of conquest. Now, I'm not saying that everybody, I'm just saying this is said, but in that context, are, are people allowed to have a discussion about, well, if there's an idea, if there's an importation of people with a different ideology uh, doesn't that affect the political culture of the host country? I mean, I, I what I see happening here is that there's um, the media or people are allowed to make an assumption that when you say American American culture, American civilization, Americanness, you're inherently referring to whiteness, and that's actually not that's not the conservative position. That's not that that's not what people who are who are making this case openly and honestly. And I'm talking not talking about Steve uh, King specifically, just in general about Western civilization. That that's not a position they necessarily take, but that's always imposed on them because then it's just about people are being racist. Uh, but there is such a thing as ideological ideological uh, lack of assimilation. That is a real problem that Europe is facing, and America has it too. Yeah, if we believe that, if we're willing to believe that we have any kind of identity, any kind of culture at all in this country, or that we should anyway, you know, just, just that we should all at least agree on some really basic things, like for instance. Um, it's not okay to stone a woman to death for adultery or to throw a gaze off a rooftop. If we would all agree that that's part of our identity as Americans, or at least should be, and I think we all would, liberals, conservatives, right, we'd all agree on that, then can't we agree that cultures which disagree with us on that very fundamental precept don't fit here, that, that we cannot assimilate those cultures because they're so radically different from ours? Um, but we're obsessed with this idea that you know, all cultures are equal. You can't judge a culture. That's not true. All cultures are cultures are different. You know, what, what is a culture? It's just the it's the sum total of beliefs and attitudes and goals and perspectives of a, of, a, of a given people, a given country. And they're not all equal. And there are some that are objectively worse 
and I'm no big fan of, of our current culture, by the way. I'm a big critic of it. But there are some that are objectively worse than ours. So a fundamentalist Muslim culture in the Middle East where those kind of things are going on, that kind of brutality, people are being executed you know, in the middle of the – infidels are having their heads chopped off and stuff like that. Obviously, I would say that's an inferior culture to our own. It's more brutal. It's more savage. It's just we don't want that culture here. We don't want that attitude. Maybe we should use that. Is that a better word? People are feel more comfortable with it. We don't want that attitude. We don't want that belief system that says it's okay to behead infidels. We don't want that here. It doesn't fit with what we're doing over here in America. And I think that was Steve King's point, and I don't understand why conservatives would disagree with that. I, I, this is one of the really fundamental things we're all supposed to agree on, I thought, anyway. Yeah, they, they, well, they, there's a subtext that we're supposed to see that Steve King is a, a white nationalist or a racist. And I, I went over what he said here. And, for example, that CNN host, Cuomo, uh, says you know that said that it's about only for white people. But America is actually a very diverse country. There are a lot of non-white. And they are, everyone here is, you know, America is an idea. America is not a race. And so to say that, anyway, to say, to say that we need to uh, have Americans that are replacing themselves as as a necessary part of the propagation of American culture is not to say that this is about whiteness. It's about Americanness, which I think the left just rejects that out of hand. They think that anytime you talk about America or Western civilization, it has to be only about whiteness. But anyway, Matt, we got to leave it there. Matt is the author of the Matt Walsh blog. He's also an author at The Blaze. Check out his latest on TheBlaze.com. Matt, thanks for making some time for us. Hey, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Yeah, Maddow has tweeted out. Maddow uh, from N, uh, MSNBC has uh, tweeted out that it's the 2000 pre- President Trump's 2005 1040 form. Uh, I highly doubt this is interesting, but it it doesn't really matter because people are so rapidly anti-Trump that having and, and the tax they, they really have. I mean, the conspiracies on the left now are fascinating. They really think that not only do you have a Trump. Kremlin Russia conspiracy to throw the election, of course, which we've talked about so much. And you'll notice I didn't get into it today because I like to give, I like to mix it up and give us breaks from you know ah, ah, Trump Russia Trump Russia Russia Trump you know drink vodka talk about Russian and Trump and my I swear I don't know what is wrong with me my Russian sounding like Count Chocula all the time. Um, anyway, uh, Manow says she's got the 2005. 1040 form. I doubt there's anything in this of real interest to anybody, um, but just the tax story. Anything Trump taxes is going to get a lot of attention, and people are going to pretend it's ooh, you know, this is this is just a taste of what we're going to get later with the Trump taxes. Oh, it's going to this is going to uh, uh, who who wants to? I mean, I'm not actually offering you a place to bet here. I mean this rhetorically, but who wants to place to bet that this is a nothing burger, a nothing burger on Trump taxes? You you heard it here first, a nothing burger with cheese, and. Uh, I personally like bacon and sautéed onions on my burgers, but we can talk burgers another time. We got Ben in North Carolina, WPTI. Ben, what's up? Not a whole lot. I'm just uh, listening to your show, and I'm I'm curious why nobody and I'm and I'm I guess I'm probably far off base because no one wants to talk about it. But I think it's a religious war. I. I've been all over the Middle East. I've I've seen it. I've seen what happens. I've been to public beheadings in Jeddah, and uh, I've I've seen a whole lot of what Islam is about. And when I came home, I knew I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And I think it's it's really a shame that 
nobody is really calling what it is. It's it's an Islamic takeover of the world. Well, and, that's certainly what the that's certainly what jihadists uh, believe, and and Islamists in their own way, although they're less quick to turn to violence, they do want a political system that is driven by a totalitarian form of Islam, and uh, th- that's a very real dynamic. But you know, there are also a, there are a lot of of Muslims for whom it's just about faith and worship, and it's their you know it's their belief system, and and they're uh, perfectly. Uh, willing to be pleasant and live within the laws and and you know so it's i i know we always have to go back and forth and you don't want to paint with too, paint with too broad a brush uh, look there's that if you ever are curious for an interesting exchange on this sam harris on the bill maher show and then ben affleck believe it or not the actor got into it on this but sam harris said that islam without specifically attacking individual muslims which is what i avoid doing as well um, but Sam Harris said, and he's an atheist, by the way, so if, if that sort of thing bothers you, don't go and read a lot of Sam Harris. Uh, but he said that Islam is the mother load of bad ideas. That was his quote. And it's certainly a good place to start if you're looking for the mother load of bad ideas. I can say that. that the, the, so, so uh, you know, may, maybe that's getting a little bit closer, uh, uh, Ben, to your point here. But I also think it's important to separate out individuals and how they practice their religion from the overall uh, belief system and what it means for, you know, it's, it's we're talking about 1.6 billion people, but, you know, if it's 1% of 1.6 billion people that are jihadists, unfortunately, that's a lot of people. So we have to deal with that um, without maligning everybody else. But, Ben, thanks for calling in from North Carolina on uh, WPTI. And, uh, wow, we've only got about a minute left on the show. So, um, by the way, I, I maybe I'll talk more about this tomorrow. I don't want to. I don't want to turn this show into a therapy session where I get to whine about the tax code. But I think it matters to all of us. And while we're spending all this uh, airtime here and elsewhere and everywhere else talking about healthcare and the GOP and healthcare, I kind of wish that they would do the tax reform thing when everyone's really paying attention to taxes, which is right now. Uh, be, and and I also think that they should that Trump should just say, you know what, no more government withholding. Everybody has to, everyone who pays taxes now has to write a check. Everybody has to write a check to the federal government. That would change our views of this, I think, very quickly. Because uh, I'm going to have to write a check. And oh, gosh, I hate that. Hate it. And they've already taken so much of my money. I hate it. Uh, so tax code should be done now. All right. If you're listening, please go on uh, iTunes or iHeartRadio iHeart app uh, and subscribe to the show. You can subscribe on iTunes. You can play it on demand on the iHeartRadio app. Subscribing is great because it pops up in your. Uh, in your feed, or whether you download or not. So just go Buck Sexton with America Now in iTunes in the search bar and click on that and click subscribe. And uh, please do tell a couple of friends about the show because we're growing fast, but we need your help, Team Buck. Until tomorrow night, we're going to have a fantastic show. Shields high.